Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Hi everyone. Today I have with me Mark Green and Dr. Saliha Bhava. The reason I reached out to them is because quite honestly, there isn't a checklist of to-do items when we are teaching and talking to our sons at any age about what it means to be a man or how to treat women. But that's what we've seemed to have been taught all along, that men and women alike, and that this mentality, as is so many other things that we have thought that we knew about parenting and childhood development, is flawed and destructive in, in many ways. And so I reached out to my guest today because a listener of my show, a mom, was feeling paralyzed by what is okay in terms of teaching her son about boundaries, consent, flirting, etc. In the wake of the, the Me Too movement that many of us like still remember is just happening. And so I told her, I'll find the person and ask. And so through a series of events and referrals, it was suggested that Mark Green was the man and the guy that I needed to talk to about this topic. And why was he the guy? Well, because he wrote this killer book that I have right here it's called The Little Me Too Book for Men. But it was towards the end of the book and the chapter that starts to shift from the topics that he brings up in this book to relationships, and in particular, our adult relationships. And that chapter was, as he notes in the book, was actually written in cooperation with um, uh, Saliha. And I knew that I actually needed to have both of them to come onto the show and talk to me about this because they also wrote another fantastic book, which is called The Relational Book for Parenting. And so I decided that in order to have the best episode I can on this topic is to have them both here at the same time. And in this way, I have a chance of reaching my goal for today, which is to find out how do we create the relationships with our sons that allow us to discuss topics like sexuality with them and not just how to have sex, because that's the easy part of the sex discussion, um, but how to embrace, you know, embrace the multitudes of layers that are around sexuality and relationships in general. So as I had stated many times on this show and on other people's show, I'm not the it's up to boys and men to change their attitude towards women kind of a person or that they alone are responsible for learning how to treat women with respect. I believe there's a missing link in the relationships between sons and mothers, and that may be a very large part of the foundation that we need to start looking at how do we build there. And so I want to be able today to talk about this book and and I'd like to transition through this conversation so my listeners can carry with me how this translates into our parenting before they become men and what kinds of shifts and attitudes in our relationships need to happen sooner. And then at the conclusion, what you're going to hear is these two fantastic people are going to tell you how you can find them, how you can get the books and the resources that they have available today. So I want to welcome both of you to One Broken Mom. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Awesome. Now they are, um, I'm going to full disclosure, the two of them are married, which I think is pretty badass here. So um, while they have this professional thing, I think what you're going to see, um, and we were talking before the, the episode started that it was important for me because they are the demonstration of what we're going to be talking about today in terms of connecting with one another and being able to share information respectfully and intelligently back and forth. And so um, I'm really stoked about this. Now, right off the bat, Mark, I want to jump in and ask, what was the impetus for getting this book out on the market when you did and publishing it? Um, what, what caused you and uh, that said, I have to say something, I have to say something on this topic. Right. Well, I, I have been um, a senior editor at the Good Men Project for about 10 years. So I began my, uh, writing as a, as a father. Um, I, I have a son from a previous marriage that um, Saliha and I both are very much engaged in, in parenting with she's been his bonus mom since he was four and he's now 13. So, um, I began writing about manhood moved into, uh, masculinity and manhood writing because I was intensely concerned about the messages, the cultural messages that my son would be receiving. And I also began to look back at my own story. And the fundamental question was what the hell happened to me? What was that? What, what is this that we're embedded in this? And the challenge for men, of course, is that we're taught so stringently and effectively what manhood is that we no longer differentiate between the culture that's giving up uh, us messages about masculinity and our own sense of self. We think those two things are the same thing. So when, when someone begins to talk about masculinity, we think they're talking about us. When in fact, if we can help men understand that most of what we believe to be true about being a real man in this culture was taught to us by our culture of manhood, something I refer to as man box culture in the book, because it's not a pretty, not a pretty culture. Um, then men can, can maybe see a little bit of daylight between our culture of manhood and our sense of identity, who we think we are, what we think is true about us. And if we can get a little bit, little wedge of daylight in there, that space, that spot is where men can begin to ask questions about why do I believe this? And why is this supposedly true about men? And they can begin to make change. So for me, the book came out of a sort of a growing awareness over a period of years of writing about what this culture is doing to men then I got invited to go to California and speak to a congregation uh, about Me Too in November of last year. And, uh, and the book is sort of a byproduct of the notes for that and the process for that. And then Kavanaugh came along and then, and then, and then. But, uh, but the, book it's, the book wrote itself in about two and a half months. Mm -hmm. um, it's the byproduct of years of thinking and working and considering these issues. But what I felt like I needed to do was create a book that both created some compassion for what happens to young boys and men in our culture of manhood, but also to create some accountability around what men need to do to break free of the conditioning that they've been subjected to. Right, right. Because as we all know, the, um, you know, the probably the biggest piece of the Me Too movement wasn't just the fact that women were standing up and, 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 you know, shining a light on the abuses and the assaults that they have regularly received throughout their mm -hmm. life that, you know, 
you know, in some ways women just kind of say, well, that's what it means to be a woman. We're just going to, you know, we're going to deal with that and tolerate that. And it was getting to a place of where it was no longer tolerable. And then the, the surprise, you know, I, and I think it was surprising for some people was to see the, the visceral reactions against it of defensiveness and fear, you know, this strong, like, that's, you know, BS. Um, by the way, this is an adult show. So if you need to throw out a word like bullshit, you know, that's fine. And that's what I'm going to say. It was like, you know, you can't believe those women. They, they're, you know, they're not telling the truth, but, but in the middle of it was, um, I called it the, you know, the silent majority, um, of men and women, I think, but mostly men that just didn't know how to even articulate how they were really feeling about it because they, they were conflicted and there wasn't, you know, there doesn't appear to be a safe space to talk about the fact that, yeah, I get that that's wrong, but yet at the same time, I didn't feel like I was doing something wrong and what do I do and going back and forth. And so we were, you know, it seems like the conversation was defined by the two extremes, right? The women that were out there talking about the fact that, you know, they'd been raped, they'd been abused, they'd been assaulted sexually, emotionally, whatever. And the guys, you know, on the other end going, you can't believe any of them, you know, stop attacking men, you know, kind of a thing. So um, I, I want you to, to talk then about what is this man box culture, the part that kind of gagged the men in the middle, you know, the, that, that they were fighting against kind of intellectually here. Well, the, when you talk about man box culture, you're talking about a concept that a guy named Paul Kivel created in cooperation with the Oakland Men's Project in the 80s. And what he did uh, was he went into high schools and he asked boys and girls what it, what it means to be a woman or be a man. And what he discovered that boys were telling him was that there was a very, very narrow set of expectations, but they were very strident and stringent. And they, they were things like, um, don't show your emotions, um, be a leader, be tough, be, get, get up, get the girls, get the ladies, um, care about sports, talk about sports. That's the conversation that's okay to have. Um, but, but what I like to focus on is this idea that, um, that we don't show our emotions. And what happens in this man box space, he would draw a, you know, a square on the blackboard and he would write these ideas about how to be a man. And then he would turn back to the class and he'd say, okay, so when you fail to do this, what, what do you get called? What, what's the name? And they would say, oh yeah, sissy, faggot, uh, wimp, girl. So what's going on in that, in that kind of systemic daily policing and bullying about identity for boys is, Whenever boys seek to express authentically, emotionally, express their wish for connection with other boys, all of these things are falsely gendered as feminine. These are universal human capacities and needs. They're falsely gendered and then shamed as feminine. So in that moment, you block boys from doing the trial and error work that normally takes years to grow their relational intelligence, to grow their ability to be in relationship with others, especially across difference. You block all that off and you denigrate girls and LGBT people. So the end result is you have boys and men who are socially isolated because they don't know how to express uh, in, in uh, authentic ways in relationships. And that's it, it is in that relating, in the back and forth of relationships, that emotions emerge. So when you tell a boy, don't show your emotions, you're basically saying, don't have deeper, more meaningful relationships. So that creates an epidemic of social isolation for men. Uh, we have, a, a, you know, we have a study from Signal last year that said that one out of every two Americans uh, considers themselves sometimes or always alone. Uh, AARP did a study in 2010 
Uh, one out of three Americans, 45 and older, are chronically lonely. So you have this epidemic of loneliness for men. You have the denigration of women as the way that we police and shame boys. And that happens not, not weekly, not daily. It happens hourly when you're a boy. Yeah, what are you, a fag? What are you, a girl? And, you know, that goes on and on and on and on. So you, you cannot help but end up with a culture where girls are essentially subject to this sort of Disney princess idea of womanhood. And when their prince finally shows up, he's likely to have contempt for them. Right. Which is heartbreaking, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and and one of the things that has always been a, you know, a strong part and I, you know, I told you guys, this is my opinion, but I, I, you know, it's, it's what kind of fuels me here, which is um, that, that I think that we culturally also, you know, here's our, here's the mom's role in this. And I, you know, I take accountability cause I am mom and is that part of that enforcement of that, a culture is this myth. And I've brought this up with other therapists that are specialists in working with men and human brains all together. And it's like, is there a, you know, it, the myth that the boy brain is incapable of emotions, which I, again, it's like, that's to me, one of the most dangerous topics that's out there. And I've even seen this and I, you know, um, I, I can see you down there, um, Sally Hogg kind of going, oh yeah. And I've asked like, okay, can someone please finally tell the world that that's, that that's another one of those bullshit myths? Because what happens then is from a parenting standpoint is they're there. My son's never going to get this. Just go play with your dad. Go have, ask your dad. And we keep we keep kind of farming off that that uh, parenting aspect further to men to con- and that we are just constantly continuing in that chain of I have a, a man here whose emotions were denied and now I've just told my son if you want to learn about life you go learn it from the guy that never learned it himself and we just keep this kind of perpetuating in there and that's why I say that to me there's a there's a, a shift in terms of what moms need to do and what moms need to understand. Um, and, and participating in there. Um, and, and you talked about with this relationship that weakening relationships between men and women is a piece of this, that there's a reason in this man box culture for it to, to not have those strong relationships because it's a piece of controlling the narrative, right? And, and controlling the culture. Do you guys both yeah. want to talk about that part of that? I'm going to say a couple things and then pass it over to Sally, huh? Okay. The important thing to understand about um, man box culture is it is a hierarchical pecking order um, arrangement in which men uh, are slotted in at whatever status they have and they and they communicate and reinforce their sense of male identity through bullying and the pecking order structure and we know this we we walk into a bar and everybody takes a look at each other and we figure out who the alpha is and everybody slots in and then we begin micro micro aggressions and challenging each other and oh you you're an idiot and whatever and that's the whole process for men but when we talk about this mechanism which strips away boys relational capacities one of the primary things that gets stripped away is the manifestation and expression of empathy and it is through empathy that when, when we grow stronger relational intelligence and stronger relationship capacities, we begin to, to, to um, create a, a culture of empathy in which it would be more difficult for boys and men to denigrate uh, people who are different. And so while we teach boys don't do, don't do this, don't do that, you know, how to be respectful for girls and women, if they don't have the underpinning of their fully human relational capacities, their ability to form rich, 
diverse relationships, they're facing social isolation, which is uh, the health equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, by the way, it'll kill you. And they don't, they don't connect in ways with even their own partners that will uh, fully, uh, fully engage empathy. Uh, but Sally, how, what's your take on the, on this question of boys brains, not being able to show emotions. That's crazy, right? Well, I was shaking my head. No, <laughs> um, I, I, I think if we zoom out and we don't fully understand everything about the brain, I'll just say that as, as I'm a, both a researcher and a therapist, and I also critique research methodologies. So how we study something impacts what we get as a result. And that becomes the data that, or the stories that we then start circulating culturally, and therefore we make the culture and call it scientific. But science is not fully there yet. So if you go back, culture has and predates science. Mm-hmm. And so we need to take from both culture and science as we draw this, meaning both are evolutionary and both are coming through. So from that perspective, what have we done? What have we done with boys' emotions? And I think, Mark, you spoke to that and how we raise boys. And we culture ourselves, we train ourselves, socialize ourselves into thinking women do emotions better than boys do. So there are two factors here. Maybe they do because we believe it to be so. And so we don't see how boys do emotions. That may be one. And the second is, the suppression that Mark is talking about, that we do suppress it and don't recognize when they are doing something because it's not familiar or it doesn't look, or they're not supposed to do it that way. Mm-hmm. And so those two factors is, is an example of how we have gendered roles. We have gendered parenting. And you talk about it as, and go ask your dad about it or talk, go talk to a man. We think there's some things men can do better than women and women can do better than, but it's something we have trained ourselves to believe that it belongs in the women department versus it belongs to the male department. You know what, what's also interesting is I did a, um, I did a, a simple tweet the other day and it kind of, kind of moved around a little bit because I think it's something that people don't often think about, but we have a movement right now and it's a valid, important, significant movement where we're talking about the kind of affirmations we need to give our daughters Mm-hmm. And instead of saying you're pretty or you're whatever, you know, you, you need to say you're smart, you're tough, you're strong. Um, and, and really what, what we're speaking into in that moment is the part of human identity that our culture has said, oh, that's masculine. But it's really not. It's a, it's a universe, you know, being tough and strong and, and, and resourceful and a leader is a human capacity. So we, we've begun speaking to our daughters and say, you know, I saw what you did on the, on the playground today. That was really good leadership or that was really strong or look how you, you got up and kept going and that's great. But we have an equal categorical, cultural, gendered set of capacities that we're not watching for in our sons and we're not marking for them. So if we, if we, if we need to begin giving affirmations to our daughters about strength and leadership, we can give those to our sons. We give, we give that anyway. But, but why aren't we saying, hey, I noticed that, that, that you took good care of your friendship in that moment. And hey, you know what you're really good at? You're really good at spotting emotions in others. Did, what emotion did you see? Tell me about that. And in that moment, we begin to affirm the relationship capacities in our sons that they go, oh, that's a thing that I, that, 
mom and dad are noticing. Wow, okay, so I'm going to have that. And then you have the conversation after that. What did you think they were feeling? And do you think it's different at their house when they talk about that kind of stuff? And in that moment, you begin to activate the part of your son's capacities that we typically culturally gender as feminine, but which are powerful human capacities. So we strip it. We strip half of being human away from our daughters in terms of strength and leadership, and we strip half of being human away from our sons in terms of these relational capacities, which, as we're coming to understand now, are crucial to leadership, even in places like the army, even in places like professional sports, et cetera. Yeah. So, and I, I I'm sitting here listening that you know the challenges to both of those things, right? So. When we talk about the message, and I was just watching the video yesterday, the Serena Williams video, I think they showed at the Oscars. Um, and again, talking about, you know, that women are also allowed to be negatively emotion. You know, I mean, our emotions are okay. And you, you called it in the book, the Hallmark card of emotions, you know, where there's yeah. certain ones that are allowed and you can, you know, write them down very succinctly. But women also have been told that in, in culture are starting to be told that it's okay for us to get pissed off about things. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's also a very natural piece that we've had that emotion stripped from us. So while we've been, um, allowed to be emotional only in certain circumstances and as long as it didn't challenge men, right? Um, and so uh, the other, the antithesis to what you were saying was that, you know, the, the new messages that we give to our sons in terms of developing that, that emotional and relational intelligence in them is countered in terms or, uh, or refuted or, or objected to by the same almost people that object to women taking on those leadership and strength qualities. Like there's, and that's where that, like this man box thing. And I think that is bigger than that, right? Because that man box challenges keeping men from feeling emotional and, and shaming them for that, because that's just simply what they've been told. And it's, it's easy to manipulate the bag of marbles and pull the marbles out that you want than to have them all connected together. And there are also the same ones that are trying to, you know, constantly, um, you know, say that women shouldn't be doing certain things. Um, which is what makes this a really powerful and challenging conversation. And, you know, one of my questions is how do you have all of these talks without the men that are objecting to both of these really feeling defensive all the time about this? Cause that's what you're doing, right? It's the, it's the cognitive dissonance. You've challenged their view and belief of them. And we all do that. We all get to this place of like, I don't believe that that's true about me. And I think some men really do feel that, that it's wrong to challenge the man box culture right? I, I mean, am I wrong? Like they, they feel that it's actually the right way for them. And I, and you, how do you break through that barrier there with them without them feeling like they're being attacked? Yeah. You know what and I think? Go ahead. I, I think one of the first things is what is the conversation about? And that, that's very central. If it's a conversation about debating and opinions, I think it's a totally different conversation versus a conversation to understand how do you experience being a man or how do you experience being a woman? They are very different conversations. True. Yeah. And, and so I think we are living in a culture which is polarizing and binary and there's a constant induction to polarize further. And it doesn't serve the people who are in the conversation. It serves the system that's in place to keep the fight going. Mm-hmm. So I would say that and pass the ball to Mark and say, we have to kind of be aware of what is the conversation and what am I being invited into by both the larger culture and in this moment as we have the conversation. Well, what would you add, Mark? Um, I want to go back to, uh, to what Ami said about um, this silent majority, because mm-hmm. I think we also operate in this culture uh, on the illusion that the loudest 10, 20% of men who are these alphas who are driving this retrogressive 
dialogue this, and who, who support uh, the binary because it has uh, political outcomes that benefit them and so on. If we step out of that space and start looking at this silent majority, what I think we're seeing there is uh, a number of intersecting binds on those men that silence them. But I, I believe, I mean, Promundo just did a, a report, they just released data that said something like 70% of U.S. men believe it, that equality needs to be, needs to, needs to happen and that it's not happening fast enough. So we know that there's a significant majority who actually support, um, a movement toward equality for all of us, right? For, for uh, people of color, for women, for LGBT people, for everybody. So what's ma- what's making them be quiet? It is, among other things, we all grew up in man-bot culture, right? So we have this thing that I call the integrity bind for men. And it is that no matter where we grew up or, or uh, you know, what the context was for us, sooner or later we had to conform to man-bot's culture in order to be allowed to be a member of our cohort. And if we didn't, we were bullied and policed and, and potentially beaten up or even murdered if we didn't. So it, we have histories of denigrating girls and women and LGBT people. It was as common as water flowing in the conversations of boys and young men. So we have this part of us that says, if I speak up now, I'm just a hypocrite, right? I, my own history is a history of denigrating uh, others. And men have to take a moment. And it's not that it's literally a moment of courage to push through that sense of, well, I shouldn't be the one to speak because I don't have a very good history on this and understand that that 20%, those alphas who are vocal and, and binary, they'll, they'll call you out in the moment that you speak. They called out Gillette for its ad. They right. said, what, that's what I was thinking. What right Gillette Gillette ad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What right does Gillette have to speak? It has no history of speaking in this way. Gillette's own history is, is, uh, is in fact problematic. So shut up. You have no integrity. You don't get to speak. So that's part of the silencing is this integrity bind for men coupled with a lot of men in the middle, silent men support these ideas for their wives and their daughters and whatnot. But if they speak up in the workplace, maybe that manager one step above them that they know is an alpha is going to then block them from the next raise or the next opportunity to work on a project or whatever. So they're fearful because we, we as men live in this siloed nature, right? We don't, we don't share our thoughts on these matters with the other six guys around the water cooler. So we don't even know what the other ones are thinking. This is a, 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 a I think man box culture's greatest uh, and most damaging impact is it creates silence between men. Talk about sports. That's a safe subject. Don't talk about anything else. And if we bring it up, the one alpha in the group is going to immediately challenge us and shut us down, police the conversation, and get us back into the man box. So man box culture is about a lot of, I believe, about a, a vast majority of men who believe in creating change, but they're frozen. They're, they have been frozen in place for so long that, that they need something to break them free and, and get them moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that. And that's where, you know, I'm not a man. Uh, and I believe that I, to me, part of that can happen from being a woman in that conversation and, and, and being supportive of it. I know, through, you know, during, through the Me Too movement, I, 
I shared my stories and I also didn't participate in the blackout that, you know, many women were wanting to do of like, well, if we just cut ourselves off from, you know, from social media and, and show these black screens and see, see what those men will think about us, you know, not being around. And, and I said, you know what, I, I honor and respect anybody that chooses to do that. We all get to choose how we can show, you know, um, uh, our opinions or feelings on this, but I intentionally in the moment reached out and said, I'm here though for the conversation. Like this isn't a, these things happened to me, but they aren't because of all of you men out there in the world did something wrong to me. These incidences happened, these people. And in fact, some of the, the things that happened to me in my experience happened with people I'm actually still friends with, you know, because of the fact of like, it was a, it, it there were circumstances here that I acknowledge. They were things that happened by children or, you know, young men that aren't indicative of who they would be today. And if they looked back on themselves at that point with their own son, they would be, you know, mortified that it even happened. And I, and I get all those pieces. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said that, that, that courageous conversation, I'm here because if you can't find the support from the other men, you're all silenced out there. Then I want them to know that there are other, you know, there's the rest of us, you know, that are there. Um, I want to transition this because, you know, again, I go back to, <clears throat> I have a son. And so I think about this of, of this, you know, what is my son learning about his relationships relationally with women that is actually coming from the relationship that he has with me. And like I said, you know, I, I don't have the dad for him to farm off and say, you take care of it. And I've never believed that that was the case either. I've always been the whole like, whoa, 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 guys, boys, boys have emotions. Like we can, we can do this. Um, and so I, I do have that strong belief that there is a, that there's a power that starts with mother and son that actually can, um, can, can begin to, uh, to pull the weeds out of this culture here. I'm curious as to whether or not both of you or either one of you have heard in your work and, and experience working with men, if, if men ever said, you know, there are some things that I wish that I learned from my mother that maybe that they feel like there's a gap in their life today. And I asked that question because I had had a, a guest on who had this fascinating results of a study of women talking about like, these are the things I wish my mom taught me. And I believe that there, there may be some things that men out there. And I'm just wondering, like, do you have any of those that you've heard that men wish that they had learned from their mom and what those might be? Um, in my conversations with men, what I think most um, is most challenging for men is the utter lack of engagement on any level from moms and dads about the question of who am I, how do I process what I'm going through as a young boy, uh, how do I process what I'm going through in life. Um, if, we, if we do, in fact, strip away half of being human from girls and half of being human from boys, then I think that mothers and fathers equally, but mothers most certainly have the capacity to begin engaging their sons in the kinds of relational conversations that grow their son's self-awareness around expression, right? Because again, I want to reiterate, this is a trial and error process that needs to go on over years and we cut them off from it. it when a baby first expresses emotionally, typically it's a very loud, big smile, big cries, big everything, right? And it is through the iterative process over a period of years that we as human beings begin to understand how not to collapse into the emotions of others, how to consider context, how to express in ways that holds our ideas more lightly, how to do all these relational things that are integral to having a, a rich, connecting relationship, right? So our book, which Saliha and I wrote about parenting 
is about how to have that conversation starting at a very young age with boys and girls. And what, you know, Saliha, what are some of the capacities that you see as being uh, maybe, uh, you know, I don't gender it as mother focused work, but mothers are with kids, with boys and girls for, for the majority of the time still. So even though I don't gender it that way, women have a powerful role to play, right? Right, right. And I, and I will say that, and I've mentioned this before on my show, that I get that not all mothers are female. So, um, but it is that primary relational caregiver that, you know, is where the, where the emotional connections start to form. And it generally is, it is a female mom. Um, it can be parents. I, I understand that our families are all different. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think of, um, and not to cut off uh, Sally Ha from answering mm-hmm. this, but when I think of this, I think about when we talk about the, the gendered relationship between men and women, I think that we learn some of those cues from the first gendered relationship, which happens to be between son and mom, you know, you know, son and mother. So that's where, so Sally Ha, please, you know, continue. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm curious, like when you were talking about mothering, not all mothers are moms uh, in terms of women, yeah. um, that right there is an interesting phenomenon, I think, because it's like you're already introducing who gets to do, assuming mothering means nurturing. So I'm curious what mothering means to you, for all of us, for that matter, right? Right, Uh, right. So I think the the question for us as parents is, what is parenting? Is parenting teaching and telling? Or is it also, additionally, being curious and seeing how our children are starting to pick up the world around them? And what are they seeing? And what are they picking up? So in that says parenting becomes one of the subject matters of conversation if that makes sense like we don't talk about our own selves our roles our relationships we talk about the world out there and what they need to learn or how they need to respect us mm-hmm. so what is respect children hardly this is my favorite pet peeve so i'm going on my soapbox for a second do it <laughs> respect is such an abstract concept you go around the culture it means different things for different people and we think our children when we point behaviors at them and say, say please and say thank you, we'll automatically know that that means respect. So that's a one small example of we have to make those connections and we have to get curious, how are they making connections? So right, and the, the, you know, the respect thing, Saliha, reminds me of the um, how to treat women thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I want to come back to that. Let me go there for yeah, a second. Yeah, go ahead, keep going. It comes back to gender. It comes back to how do you see mom? How do you see dad? How do you see families where there are two moms or two dads or they're gender fluid people? And, and, and I think it's that conversation about gender itself needs to be part of that conversation. What, what curiosity can you bring as a parent, as a mom? And where do you stand? Because this is the hard part. Part of we think of what parenting is, we are transmitting our values to our children. Mm-hmm. So we want to give our opinions to them. When do we start suspending our opinions or hold them as ours and not that our children have to have it by extension that they are our children? And that's a tough one because where does that line come in? Like when, when is something okay for your child to have that's different in a view or, or value than yours? Mm-hmm. So I don't know where you, where were you going to go, Mark? Well, only in the sense that if we teach our children to say thank you and please, that doesn't, that does not, that doesn't emanate, emanate from their sense of what they value in relationships. That's a, that's a, that's a rule or an idea. And often, and if we are indeed teaching our sons later in life, this is what you do or don't do with girls and women, 
we're still not getting at that fundamental empathy component, that fundamental connection component, which would allow them to arrive at those conclusions in different circumstances, right? Transferability of that idea so that they begin to say, oh, I say thank you because I'm grateful. And in that moment, something passes between me and this other person that makes our lives richer, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it's, it is this question of the conversations we're in with our children. Have to, we have to be willing to self-reflect in those moments openly with them, show them how that looks when we say, oh, I got upset earlier. That really wasn't the right thing to do. But let me help you understand what we do now when we go back and self-reflect about that and make an apology and say, hey, you know, it's not just the emotions you feel. It's and how you express them in the moment. It's what you do later to maybe make it right. And you begin to break down this process of our responsibility to each other as human beings. And and that's the part of parenting that I think gets lost in the teaching, telling, get them to class on time, get them to their workshop, get them back in bed, get, you know, get dinner in them. But there's these little conversations that are always happening. And we can say, well, what do you think he felt about that? How did you feel? And what do you think might be a better way for that conversation to have happened? All that stuff we can be doing in the process of shoveling you know, their food in front of them and getting them in the car and doing all that. I right. think what I would add to that is also this idea of we are very quick as part of teaching and telling. We name things for our kids. Mm-hmm. And how might we stay curious to learn about what is it that they're expressing and how do we stay open to the complexity of emotions? And I think that we are often naming it as a singular rather than the plurality of what might be one, what might be one's own experience as a parent and that of a child. And so to kind of stay in that messiness, to kind of stay a little bit curious, a little bit playful, draw faces if it's a young child or act out crazy emotions a little bit is one way to, and I, I'm a researcher of play, and by play I mean how do we experiment in life? How do we do the trial and error of life? And that is the space where we start creating fluidity rather than this notion of there is a singular way to be. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it speaks to the question you're raising. Um, no, it does. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because a lot of the challenges that I think that parents have is that we've been told that it's really, you know, we need to compartmentalize what we do with our kids. When you, when you talked about respect, a lot of us confuse obedience with respect, that mm-hmm. that's how you show respect for your parents by listening to whatever they tell you. And if you don't agree with it, that means you don't respect your parents. And it, so you are, uh, you know, at, during your formative years, you are disobedient when you don't listen to what your parents are telling you uniformly to do and you're not behaving that way because you are, you are either through just the natural brain development of being an adolescent or you're just sitting here going, I'm struggling with who I really am at my core and what it is I should be doing. Um, and so as you were talking about that, I, you know, like, so I said, a thumbs up when Mark mentioned the word empathy, because I think I'm going to go back to the question, right. And kind of the root of the question that my listener gave me, which is what do I teach my son in this world of me too? what is right and what is wrong. And I, because in the media, that's been the whole, that, you know, part of the language. And again, I know that it's just like the, the, the hyperbolic, you know, discussion points that make good sound bites, which is needing to teach our boys respect. You know, they need to know about this. We need to be clear about what consent actually is. We need to teach them about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate as if it's a black and a white answer. It's a binary discussion. But the reality is, is that sexuality is blurry, gray, and it's messy. And that appropriate interactions, to be honest, 
are dependent on the actors that are involved. And I think that that's what's confusing for people. And that's what some of the people in the silent majority are sitting there thinking to themselves is, um, and men and women, you know, both, uh, to be frank, that no doesn't always mean no. Um, and that flirting is okay. But the ability to develop the skills and the instincts to know and understand your circumstances better so that you know when it is not okay and when, you, you know, when to adjust your sales is really the answer, to, you know, in, in this thing. And I, I believe that's the empathy. Being able to sense the emotions and to take the temperature and have the emotional intelligence to go in this space with this person they've expressed boundaries. This is inappropriate. I don't do these things, but, but with this person who I have a more intimate relationship with, I do know them a little bit better. I know that we can kind of push some of these limits that those limits, you know, aren't just hard lines around there. And that's what I think my listener is asking is like, I don't know what to, how to even start to teach an 18 year old boy what it is that he needs to know, because that was a part of the Me Too movement. It was like, well, gosh, then we're all guilty of sexual harassment. Well, yeah, in different circumstances, by some sort of binary definition, we might be, right? But in that relationship with that one-on-one person, this mutual understanding of what those boundaries were, even though on paper, you know, with the way they were written out or the conversations went, I, I, you know, I believe that that's where people feel conflicted. Am I, am I, Am I wrong? Am I, am I alone on thinking on this? I mean, I think that's the empathy piece right there. Like, I feel like I've had empathetic relationships with people to know that how I engage with that person and what happens is okay. And when I'm with somebody else, that is not okay. Like there's, you know, right. there are lines there. Um, and so I guess that's, that's my soapbox. I just jumped on right here, but I'd like to know, like from your guys's, you know, your experiences and your resources and your intelligence on this area how is it that in the wake of a Me Too and the sexuality, uh, you know, and boundaries and consent and respect, what are some things that we can start to do? Um, you talk right. about with small children, but what about with our, with our young men? You know, my son's 16, you know, where do we begin there so that we don't have them, we help them break out of that man box culture that they're being kind of sucked into right now? Well, I, I just think we have to be careful in the sense of, in the interest of time, we'll be talking about one or two threads, but mm-hmm. there are more than those threads that we are going to be talking about. So I just want to put it out there. And that's true yeah. about all conversations, right? So what we say is not limited by what we have said. And the second is, these are ongoing conversations. Me Too brought it, like, like you said earlier, we women have lived it. I have all these stories that I share with Mark and I'm like, this doesn't just fly. Like it's not happening just today. It's happened all my life. Who I am today is because of all those experiences and more. And so in that same way, it is not just a conversation about consent or sexuality. It's a, con- it's a conversation about relationships and emotional expression and negotiation and hearing and listening that is happening in all aspects of our life, right? And so if you're driving your kid to school, how are you listening? We, we often, I read this, oh, put the child in the car and have the conversation you want to have in the car because they cannot escape. <laughs> Excellent point. Absolutely fantastic. We have done that. We have, we have had great conversations on the way to school. But do you also bring that mindset to other places? Because if you can't, then we are already starting to share with our children what conversations happen when, where, and how, rather than that fluidity that these conversations are ongoing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have some more ideas, but I want to hear, Mark, what you would add to that. Because I, I do want to say, oh, sorry, I, I pass the ball and take it back. Uh, <laughs> it's a fake. You fake handoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of, it's coming. He knows yeah. it's coming. Every, uh, all the defenders went to the other side of the court. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but 
that's why there is no right or wrong. It is contextual. I think, uh, I mean, you spoke about that. It is very contextual. And that's an important concept to practice with our children. And that context is there anytime, everywhere. Like I have to do that with my son, talking to him about being an Indian woman in the U.S. context. It's very different. And what does that mean for him? He's, there's no way he can know and experience that, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. But I have to share my stories. And it's through those stories we start expanding on, rather than doing the teaching and telling, sharing our stories is one of the powerful ways, I think. So that's my handoff now. <laughs> yeah. I, my, one of the things that you spoke about, Ami, was this question. Uh, we, you know, the word respect came back up. Respect to me is... Um, is do, do show that you respect me by doing what I'm telling you to do. But we talk about in our book, uh, especially the relational book for parenting, we talk about this idea that, that there's you and there's me, and then there's the relationship. And if we begin to make choices based on caring for the relationship, it shifts how we choose to speak to our kids, how we choose to uh, speak to our partners, how we choose to speak to our coworkers, et cetera. So when, if you can have the kinds of conversations with your children and you, and, and with your partner, this is not limited to, 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 to boys who are 16 or 18. You can begin this conversation about who, how are we caring for our relationship with someone that you've met in your thirties or forties or fifties. It is an idea that we begin to develop a sensitivity for caring for the relationship. And in that moment, we care for both of us and what we're creating together. And if we can, you know, we say start this converse, these kind of conversations with your kids when they're two and three and four. If you're a bonus mom who comes into a family when, when someone and, and your son is 16, you can begin these conversations. But the point is that respect is do what I say. Whereas uh, caring for our relationship creates that sense of, oh, when I'm in relationship with someone new, anyone, I'm. I have to be mindful of what's being created in the relationship. And in that moment, you start thinking about empathy, about their context, about what they're going through. I mean, I'm literally stunned that men can be in close proximity with a woman who is exhibiting distress. Stop. No, please don't. And they don't get that. Mm-hmm. In that in the bar, when they're talking to some woman they just met, and she's clearly signaling, "Stop! I don't want to have a conversation with you," and they don't feel that in themselves as distress. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. Ugh, that's hor- I'm sorry, I created that. I'm sorry, I created that in this initial little relational space between us. That's where I think if we can get our kids to begin caring for their relationships, the empathy will begin to inform. You know, teach give a guy a fish and you feed him once, teach him how to fish. He feeds himself forever. Mm-hmm. That's the idea here is that this idea of, of being relational translates into all circumstances, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, and that is exactly what one of my other guests said the same thing. Like when you, you, you zero in on one topic and in this topic, it has to do with this, um, with sexuality and again, the, the dynamics around abusive and assault and stuff like that. But it's, it's still what you're doing essentially at the core is you are feeding and 
and building and developing the instincts that do go everywhere. They, I mean, that it's like, you know, you, you don't just, it's not just a bucket over here that's treated differently than how to decide to take a job, you know, or not take a job or to take a vacation or to travel with these people or to maintain this friendship. Like that's all the, the baseline for all of that comes from the same, from that same space. Um, so what, uh, what can people do? I mean, I love the relation, you know, your relational book for parenting as you were talking about it. I will say it's not only a great parenting book, but it is a great relationship book. And I, and I love the way it's written because it's, um, it, it's very simple. I mean, it, it couldn't be any more clear. Um, the pictures in it, I mean, it's like, I was going, it's like, it's a picture book, but yet at the picture book of like, man, it just breaks this down. Like it's really that easy. Cause I think that's the part that people are like, well, all these new skills are going to be really hard to implement, especially if you're coming from deficits, you know, in your own, in your own childhood experiences, which most of us are, are dealing with the deficits that are in there. But you guys wrote a book that is, you know, yes, my parents can read it and apply it to their kids right now. But then my people that don't have parents, you know, that don't have kids, but had parents, um, but also have relationships, whether they're personal romantic or their professional relationships. I mean, you guys like nailed it. So talk about the book and, you know, um, and the work that, you know, you guys do from there with other people and, and helping them build better relationships. Well, thank you, Mark. I mean, I, I just think Mark's such a good talker about the books. So I just going to pass the ball to you. Mm. You got the ball thank back, you Mark. The, ball. Um, <laughs> the, the, to understand what, you know, if you're a parent right now and you're saying to yourself, I, I, if, if indeed this idea of helping our kids grow these capacities, which the culture blocks them from, boys and girls alike. Mm hmm. And I, I decide, I'm, okay, well, uh, maybe that is something they need. Maybe that is really central. Then this is what happens when you get our book. You open our book up, and it's full of cartoons, fables, games, theory, articles. All of these center around how can we become more mindful about our relationships. And I'll give you one example, how to care for the relational space. It's called Listening with Curiosity, and it works like this. The next conversation I have with my partner, my coworker, or my child, you know, I, I maybe have been working with this person at the office for 10 years, or I may have been married for 15 years, or, I, you know, my kid's nine. Um, we often get into the habit of thinking, okay, so I sort of know what this person's going to say or do. I know them. I know them very well. So if I come to them with a question, especially about something that's a little challenging or whatnot, I may come in with a set of expectations about what their response is going to be. When we decide to listen with curiosity, what we do is we intentionally set those assumptions aside and we say, I'm going to expect to be surprised in this conversation. I'm going to expect something new to happen. And that shifts our gaze during the process of, of uh, speaking to them. I'm going to hold my own ideas about this person more lightly. So when you have a conversation with someone about something that might be challenging or whatnot, uh, the conversation goes back and forth a couple of uh, phrases and you have literally maybe 10 threads that appear, right? So this thread is the one you expected, right? Oh, they're going to say this. That's where the conversation is going to go. But you have all of these other threads that are sitting there, maybe smaller, greener. These are going to be new ideas, different ideas. If we focus on what we expect, that's where the conversation is going to go. But if we look over here and say, hey, you said something about, about this part of the issue. Can you talk a little more about that? I'm curious about that. Or, hey, that was an interesting idea over there. We've never talked about that before. Can we talk about that? And in that moment, you open up the possibilities for what can come next. And listening with curiosity with our children is particularly powerful because in that moment, 
if we're going to be surprised, we're going to have to listen Mm -hmm. and not teach and tell. And so we open up that relational space. And instead of saying, this is what happened at the park today, and this is what it means. And when Bobby does that, this is what Bobby's doing. And so let's sit down and have dinner. Instead, we, we say, what did you think Bobby was feeling? And that's, and we step back and we listen. And in a minute, they go, oh, and they start pushing their ideas into that space. And we get the gift of what they're really feeling and, and observing. And it, maybe we have to do it a few times, but eventually they, they go, oh, here's my ideas. It's a beautiful process, listening with curiosity. And it's just one of the capacities that are listed in the book. So you can go through this book, flip it right open to the middle, say, oh, what's this uh, considering context? Okay, mm-hmm. flip the book shut and try it. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, you, uh, I, I was reading about you and you called yourself a polymath, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think that there's a leaf or even a book in, in there, which is, how do we continue to stay as learners with our children? We are very good when we are young parents, meaning um, there's so much to learn. Mm-hmm. But then somewhere along the line, we transfer that into, now let me teach and tell. Like we are t- teaching and telling them, okay, don't cross the road now, look left, look right, etc. But we're still in that learning. Like they, we are with their curiosity. But somewhere we think we need to start preparing them for the adult world. Right. And we have to get curious. What does that mean to me? What do I mean by adult world? How much of my fears are informing that? Yeah. Right. Right. Or what we think that we have the answers or I didn't, uh, nobody was there to tell me how not to make these mistakes. And I want to tell that to my child. So he or she will not make those mistakes. But part of it is in the mistakes, I call it as taking, having retakes, mm-hmm. right? That, yeah, we don't want them to make life and death mistakes, but <laughs> How do we create enough spaciousness where they can get curious about what they did? What did they learn? And how do we get curious with them about what are they learning? Right, right. And I and think I, that, that learner mindset is what I was coming back to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is something that I actually, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to be able to do with my kids, you know, a lot because of, first of all, it's, it is, it is who I am. I mean, my brain just loves it for good, bad, or indifferent, but I know that, um, you know, my, my own children, you know, one, one parent in their life was the teller and the, and the inflexible. And it was about, you know, here's the outcome I want and you need to follow the steps to get to that outcome because trust me, this is what you want, you know, not, you know, and and that is actually during their teenage years is when that really, you know, stepped in and started for them. That's where they became, uh, really, you know, conflicted and torn and frozen, you know, because they unable to make any choices because they just couldn't figure out on their own. And one of the first things that I did was, um, I, I began to like, I, I saw that I backed off and I let, I stopped, stop trying to predict an outcome for my son in particular. And I will use him as an example since we are kind of, uh, you know, on boys here of saying, you know what, I, I know what the outcome is going to be when he makes this decision. Right. But I, he's not going to learn that if I keep telling him what it is, I need to let him go through it. And, and like I said, um, you know, kind of stepping back, like you mentioned, like listening with curiosity, you know, he makes a choice. It's about cars. Most of the time he makes a decision. I know what the outcome is going to be. Let him do it anyways. And then after a while he started, I, I witnessed him saying, 
yeah, it, that's what happened. Now I know not to do that. And that whole organic, you know, decision-making process, they all got formed all on their own. If you just give them the ability to foul it up a little bit, at the end of the day, it was the choice. Is this a life or death decision? <laughs> you know, um, no, it's not. Well, then let it roll, right? Just let it go roll with it. And, um, and so I describe now the relationship with him when it comes to these things. It's like, and I tell him, I'm just going to show you, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my experience what I have seen happen. But at the end of the day, you get to make your decision. You can choose to use my, some of my experience to inform a choice that you make, but I'm not telling you what the choice should be. I'm just telling you what I think could happen. What are some possibilities? But at the end of the day, move on, you know, make your decision. And sometimes he just totally says, no, I'm going to do this on my own. Cool. That's fine. You know, again, not life or death. He's not going to, you know, it's not going to hurt him. It doesn't hurt us. Um, and then sometimes he actually does contemplate that. And I feel like that, I feel that in his, his mindset, in terms of going from a kid that was feeling really locked in to now having some freedom to fail and learn from that. Because I know that's a lot of how my forward momentum has been built on is like, Mm -hmm. I have been a master of (laughs) self-sabotage and I learned from those mistakes. And even today, this whole exp, you know, this whole thing that I'm doing now is me building upon mistakes that I've made and, and, you know, making lemonade out of the lemons that I've had. So if I know it works for me, how can I not, you know, have faith that it will work for my kids and, and, and me, when we talk about my role as mom, my role as mom is to hold the safety zone around them so that when something does fall apart, they have the center to come back to that's supportive and stable and unconditionally loves them for whatever it was that they made to know that they can then venture out with some, you know, some risk if they want to do it or, you know, weight it softly if they want to, but there is something back here that they can kind of anchor to if they need it, you know, um, while they need that kind of development. So, um, I, I think you're saying it so beautifully because I think there is something about that image of a child who's walking ahead of the parent and then they look back. Children need that. At the same time, they also need to keep taking that step forward, right? So how are we both walking with them and, if needed, giving directions? And I love the way you said it. I share my experience. And I think if, if a parent has an urge to tell, listen to that urge. I'm not saying don't tell. But mm-hmm. maybe reflect on how you're doing the telling. And I think stories is a beautiful way. Children love stories. Like, what were you like when you were growing up? And what did you do? And what we do is we extract our learning from the stories and just tell the telling of the, the message, right? But in the stories, there are a lot of connections that they can make. Mm-hmm. It's, very more, it's much more metaphorical. It's more spacious. It allows for different conversational threads that, Mark, you were talking about to emerge and opens up the conversation. Mm-hmm. So stories are very powerful. And what we do as human beings, um, Bateson is a big uh, name in this field, if anybody's interested in reading, talks about we are all living in patterns of connection. Mm-hmm. And we're all making connection constantly. And stories are that. Yeah. It's just full of connection. So if we can just be spacious in the way we are being and be curious about how they're experiencing us, our relationship, not the telling of the world and being in the world, but literally how are we doing with each other? Then we start focusing on the relational intelligence. And for me, relational intelligence is not about the bond, but it's about the ability to connect and make sense in that moment that you were describing earlier. Yeah, right. And I think that when you talk about stories, 
because that is how we build the empathy because we're, we're giving somebody an insight into our mind, our processes that we got there. And that's where the empathy is learned is to be able to, to be mind readers to some extent, right? To say, I, I, I've now have received enough information and experiences that I have this beautiful library going on of resources so that I can in, maybe anticipate and anticipation is fine. Um, you know, it, you know, it doesn't remove all curiosity, but it does allow you that instinct of like, this might not be the right context to do this certain thing, whether it be, do I say something to her <laughs> or not? And, you know, do I make a pass or not? Um, do I make a joke in the meeting or not? You know, and so like you said, that, that applications across, you know, across all levels. But, you know, I've always said that books are an important piece of, you know, I, I love books for that reason, because when you read a book and I read a lot, I think that's a lot where my empathetic skills actually were developed were from reading because you get to see inside the head of everyone, the villain, the hero, the bystanders, and you get to understand their motivations and what drove this, those actions that you don't get from just necessarily TV and movies and stuff like that. Um, but not everybody has, has ability to read, but like you're saying, we as parents um, can share the stories with our kids. And that's probably a, a you know, an, a, a very powerful teaching, you know, I'm uh, sorry, Mike, uh, teaching or learning, you know, for them rather than, like you said, don't distill out all the good details because it was the journey there to the result that they actually need to get, not just at that result, because that result's always dependent on our circumstance, our context, it not, not, it's not a prediction of what will happen to them. So um, that's awesome. Now, Mark, did you want to, did you want to share an on well, uh, I would just say that when, when we tell our stories to our children, what we are saying, there's a, there's a whole nother message that comes when you tell a story. And, and one of the major messages that comes is, I want you to know me. I want you to know me through my stories. It's not, I want you to know what to do. It's, I want you to know me. Because when we tell a story, we impart a sense of intimacy and connection and our own history and our own struggle and our own everything. And the beautiful thing about stories is there's information in there that we can't control. Mm -hmm. We cannot control what a child takes away from our stories. And so it opens up the space for other things to be observed and understood and found. And we have these unspoken uh, connections and the bonding. But if, if you want my elevator speech on what we need to do for boys and daughters, boys and girls, we live in a culture which strips us of our relational connection. We live in a culture which trains us away from the trial and error work to learn to be in relationship with our own parents, with our own brothers and sisters, much less the, the larger community, right? When we do the work to, to connect with our children, to hold our ideas more lightly, to form a relationship with them that is magical and unpredictable and interesting, the idea that, that, that teenagers stop talking to us, I got a 13-year-old who won't stop talking to me. <laughs> because we love the joy of, of what we're teaching each other. Saliha said this a while back in a video, and, and it's powerful. As they shape us, uh, as we shape them, they shape us. We're mm -hmm. shaping each other all the time. We're growing and emerging. If we can get, that, get them to that tipping point where that part of being human is central to who they are, then the man box is, is immediately dismissed as, why would I live that way? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And all of the situations that will come up that will require empathy of them will probably be able to resource that part of them. So their choices will be, I want, I want to be in relationship with people. I don't want to destroy relationships. I don't want to be a dominant pecking order man. 
I don't want to be a woman who hides her authenticity. I don't want to live that way. And I think the conversations you're in with your children, like the conversations we're in with ours, are happening in millions of households now. I grew up in silence. There was no conversation about who I was or what I aspired to. That's changed. And I think this is why we're seeing an upsurge among millennials for a much higher appetite for diversity, connection, authenticity. They want to come into the workplace and bring their whole selves. There's a change happening. It's a surge right now. It's about conversation. This is about conversation between partners, children, everyone, and open conversation and and the authenticity of our own stories. Awesome. Cool. Okay. So tell me, how can everybody find you and reach you and get more information about what you do and the books that you've, you've written and these resources that you have? Mark? Well, one of the places you can go is thinkplaypartners.com. Thinkplaypartners.com. There's a, it's a website with, uh, a, you know, links to our books and reviews and some introductory videos and whatnot. I also have a community on Facebook, facebook.com slash remaking manhood. And then I'm also on Twitter at Remaking Manhood. And uh, I'm on Twitter at ThinkPlay. And for those who are looking for professional resources or coaching or consulting, I work with couples a lot. Uh, you can find me at salihabava.com. Great. Well, you two, this was amazing and fantastic. And I appreciate and value you guys coming onto the show so much. Um, this was, you know, I hate for my listener who's like looking for the checklist of the do's and don'ts. I'm sorry, it's not that easy, right? But you guys did a fantastic way of describing what we do need to to consider and the, you know, the, the reasons why. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on One Broken Mom today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ami. Thank you. I, I love that conversation. I love the fluidity of it. Good. Awesome. My, cool. My uh, person, if they come back to you, just ask them to make their checklist with their child. Okay. <laughs> there you go. That's great. Okay. We'll end it with that. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Quirconi, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.